Please open your Bibles today to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. There's a Bible in the bench if you'd like to follow along. Being a mom is not a walk in the park. By the time a child reaches 18, a mother has had to handle some extra 18,000 hours of child-generated work. And since every child has inherited a sin nature, that makes that job extremely difficult. My message is entitled, The Powerful Influence of Mothers. Would you please stand with me today? The Powerful Influence of Mothers, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'd like to read beginning in verse 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. May we pray. Father, I pray if there be one here today, a mom, a dad, a son or a daughter that has never truly trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. May the Spirit of God do a work that we cannot do. May the Spirit of God do the work of conviction, of convincing, and bring people to yourself. Father, for those of us who are saved, may we continue in that which we have received and believed that we might be a light in this dark world. Help us to see that we are, we are here uh, to give you glory, and by giving you glory, we serve you and serve others. Fill us with your spirit. Take this, these moments together. May you impact all of us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last month, we all heard the news. Farewell to America's grandma. Barbara Bush died at the age of 92. Uh, Mrs. Bush never held a public office. She was a stay-at-home mom. In 1990, Barbara Bush was invited to give the commencement address at Wellesley College. Wellesley College describes themselves on their website we are, quote, one of the most prestigious and highly respected institutions of higher education in the country and widely acknowledged as the nation's top college for women. For decades, they have urged women to leave the home and to go into the professional world. Hundreds of their college students protested around campus with signs saying things like, how dare they invite such a woman to come and to speak at Wellesley College. Uh, they said, here is a woman who has done nothing but stay at home and raise kids. Well, of course, she was married to one president, and she raised another uh, far from doing nothing. But she did go and speak, and she brought down the house. Speaking about the powerful love found in family, she said, at the end of your life, you will never regret 
not having passed one more test, not winning one more verdict, or not closing one more deal. You will regret the time not spent with a husband, a child, a friend, or a parent. She was a mom with a powerful influence. In the Bible, we have a, a record of, of many mothers who loved God and they loved their kids more than life itself. I, I love the story of Jochebed, the, the mother of Moses. And what she did is she defied the law, Egyptian law, that said you're to put your son to death and cast him into the Nile River. And she refused and she said, I'm keeping my son alive and I'm teaching him about faith in the true God. And because of a, a mom who risked her own life, because of a mom who loved God, she impacted the man we know as the greatest human ruler that this earth has ever seen. The love of a mom. I'm aware that Mother's Day is a difficult time for some ladies and, and, and no man can understand your emotions. Maybe you want to be a mother but you can't for some reason. Some of you may have not had the best mother in the world. Some of you have had a mother who has already passed away. And some of you mothers have lost a, a child to death. And some of you mothers feel, feel the pain today of a, a wayward child this morning. And, and some of you moms, maybe you're just flying solo as you work hard to encourage your child's faith as a, as a single mom. And so this morning, I want, I want to begin by, by sharing a premise there in your notes. A mother can make a major spiritual impact on her children with or without the help of a father. A mother can make a major spiritual impact on her children. And we find that right here in the book of 1 and 2 Timothy. I'd like to introduce to you a young woman named Eunice. Uh, Eunice was raised in, in a godly Jewish home. Uh, by a godly mother named Lois. And as a girl, she would have enjoyed going to synagogue where she could learn about God. Uh, she even went to school, which was normally in the synagogue. And as a teenager, she, she seemed to be focused on spiritual matters, but soon became attracted to a young man who had no religion at all in his life. Against the counsel of her godly mother, against, against her faith and the tug of her conscience, she married the man. Now, don't get me wrong, he, he, I'm sure he was probably a nice guy, but he just thought that, that, that God and the truth about God was for weak people. Eventually, they had a, a baby boy, and they named him Timothy. Then Eunice's dad, he died, so they asked, they asked Mother Grandma Lois to come and, and move in with them, and she did, and little Timmy was just a delight to everyone. Uh, both mom and grandma would have spent hours uh, teaching uh, Tim the Old Testament stories, praying for him, praying with him. Uh, their home was a spiritual place where, where tiny Tim could learn about God and learn about his truth. Then one day, a, a preacher came to town. It was Paul came to their town of, of Lystra, and he said that the Messiah had come and that his name was Jesus. And as both Lois and Eunice listened intently about the Lord Jesus Christ, they believed and they were saved. And they began to teach Tim all about Jesus. And Paul himself discipled Tim uh, as, the, as a teenager. And then eventually Paul wrote 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, two letters to him that became part of our Bible. And in that, Paul reflects 
about the mothers who made an impact on Tim's life. And with that background, I want to show you how a mom and how a grandma uh, can impact the world by making a major spiritual impact on their children with or without the help of a father. And so there denotes how mothers can influence their children. First of all, uh, the first way a mother can have a major impact on their kids is by instilling within their children, her children, a respect for the Scriptures. In 2 Timothy 3, 12, Paul reminds Timothy that everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted both in the first century uh, but also in the 21st century. We certainly have experienced that. Uh, so don't believe every accusation made against Christians. Don't believe every accusation made against churches. Many times uh, they are false, and that's just part of, of, of seeking to live for God. Then in verse 14, Paul urges, he urges Timothy to hang tough when the hard times come, uh, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. Timothy, notice on page two, he didn't just memorize verses. He made a practice of owning what he studied. He was convinced of his truthfulness. Do you know that, that he believed that the Bible was from God? Why? Because the Bible is from God. Uh, God wrote it, and he was able to receive that. And we, we, we see that here. From a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. He believed it. He lived it out. And I think Timothy did this because he saw it. He saw it in the life of a grandma. He saw it in the life of a mom. From a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which have been able to make thee wise unto salvation. As devout Jews, uh, grandmother Lois and mother uh, Eunice had taught the holy scriptures. I mean from when he was a toddler. Uh, they taught little Timmy uh, the Old Testament stories before he could crawl uh, about Enoch and Noah, about Daniel and David and Abraham. Uh, moms, I, I strongly, I strongly encourage you uh, to play spiritual songs to your kids at home. It's never been easier now with the technology we have. Uh, uh, play the spiritual songs more than the Disney songs. Now, the Disney songs aren't bad. Well, some of them are. Uh, but, uh, but I want you to know that, that there's so much good stuff out there that you can fill uh, the ears and hearts of your children. Get some patch of pirate CDs or, or uh, download it from iTunes. Uh, Lois and Eunice, they, they were living out the commands of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 where, where God says when you, when you sit down and you, when you rise up and when you walk and when you lie down, uh, you talk about God, you talk about loving God, you talk about, about the Word of God and the truth of God. I mean, even put, put the Bible verses on your wall and then, then read them and show your kids how God and his truth can guide them in their daily lives. Moms, it's never too early to start teaching the Bible to your kids. And it's never too late if you haven't already. God wants you to instill within your children a, a, a respect and a love for the book and the truth that God has given to us. Thankfully, you don't have to do it all by yourself. You don't. We have a, a well-thought-out Sunday school program that's Bible-based. We have a 
tremendous Wednesday night children's program. We have a fantastic Christian school. Uh, by the way, we're in the process of getting a regional accreditation. Uh, we have a tremendous teen group where God is at work in our teens' lives. Uh, but dads and, and moms, it is not the responsibility of the church to teach your children. It, it is your responsibility. And we come along and assist what the command that God has given to you. It is your responsibility to be able to, to instill a respect for Scripture and a love for God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Moms, are you looking for ways to instill, instill this respect for the Word of God into the hearts and lives of your children? How to influence your kids? Number two is to instill an authentic faith. Okay, so we have the faith in the Word of God, but now we have this personal faith uh, let's turn back one page to chapter 1 and verse 5. Chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul writes, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned, the sincere faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that it is in thee also. Even though Lois and Eunice were believers, Timothy needed to come to faith in Christ himself. Faith is not inherited. It is learned. And when mothers model a genuine faith, your home becomes a greenhouse where children are motivated to have that same kind of faith. This word unfeigned or sincere it, uh, faith, it means it was unhypocritical. It was real uh, without any pretense, without any false facade. Our theme for our academy this year has been be real. Be real. Don't fake it. Faith had come into his mother's heart, into his grandmother's heart, and was now alive in his own life. And these, these two mothers were completely sold out to Christ. They were drop-dead serious about their faith. They were fully and completely devoted disciples of Christ. And Timothy knew it. You know, no one knows better than a son or a daughter if a parent's faith is, is genuine or not. Notice the chain reaction here. It goes from Lois to Eunice. It goes from Eunice to Timothy. You actually just saw it this morning a few moments ago. You see on the very first Sunday of the very first service of Valley Forge Baptist, Linda Orfanos came. And she had a 10-year-old daughter with her. That 10-year-old is, I won't tell you how old she is, uh, but that 10-year-old was, was Joanna, and now she is singing beside her daughter. You see how it goes from, from Linda to Joanna, from Joanna to, to Georgie and to Claire to the boys. Again, we don't read of a spiritual grandfather or a spiritual father anywhere in this family. That's not to say that a father is not important. He is. What I'm saying is this. A mother can make a major spiritual impact on her children with or without the father or grandfather. I want you to hear just a short testimony at this time. One of my earliest memories of my mom was peeking into her room, seeing her by her bedside on her knees with her Bible wide open, praying. I knew she was praying for me. She did this every single day. My mom did not have a great upbringing. In fact, she did not have a Christian upbringing. When my mom was in the second grade, her stepfather and her mom abandoned her and all of her siblings. She was found by the neighbor. 
However, what happened, what seemed negative, God meant it for good when her grandparents, who were godly, took them in and raised them. Although she may have had every excuse not to be a great mom, she was an awesome mom, always praying for me, always helping me, and always serving the Lord and pointing me to Christ. She showed me how to serve God in the local church. She discipled many broken women. She was involved in the outreach. She started VFBT's first junior church, and up until about a year ago, she served as a greeter. But the greatest life lesson I have learned from my mom is how to forgive other people. When she was a young mom, she heard a message on forgiveness and God convicted her. And she went home and decided that she was going to make things right with her mom who had never reached out to her. So she forgave her mom. Her mom didn't ask for forgiveness, but my mother forgave her anyway. My mom is now experiencing some health issues and I count it an amazing privilege to be able to take care of her. You know when you go into the Hallmark store and you see all those cards that say world's greatest mom? Well, I definitely have the world's greatest mom. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. Be Batchelder, just raise your hand back there. There she is. <laughs> she says a wonderful daughter too. You know, it just, it just if you, you, we can't imagine being abandoned in the second grade. But B can. But God is the father to the fatherless. God cares and God loves. And so she said in, in her life, it, it's going to start here. And now Joel and Dina have been in the church more than three decades and, and been involved in pretty much every ministry you can imagine because of a mom and a dad who have authentic faith. Moms, do you have an authentic faith? I mean, is it, is it real? Do you, do, you, do you get into the Word of God and do you pray and, and do, you, do you serve? And, and do you, is, it, is, is worshiping with other believers on the Lord's Day, is it a priority in your life and you come with joy? I know there's a busyness. I know sometimes it's hard to get things ready and, and, and you can get the kids ready and all of a sudden they played in the mud and all of a sudden, ah! And, and th those experiences happen, but... Are you going to keep going forward for Jesus Christ with an authentic faith that's real because God is real and he's real in your life? He is real in your life. I heard about a pastor. He had a long conversation with a young man about joining the church, and, and he said he was ready to join, and the pastor was curious. And so he asked him, he said, after this long conversation, he says, what did I say that convinced you? And the young man said, it was nothing you said. It's nothing you said. It was my mother's example. As I think about that kind of faith that was passed from a mother to a son, I'm convinced that a mother like this has to be more interested in her children knowing the Bible than be able to speak another language before they are five years old. Does it matter if your five-year-old can count the ten in Chinese? I mean, is that really important? On page three, a godly mom is more interested in her children's eternal life than their success in this life. A godly mom is more interested in her children's soul than in their bodies or their clothes. A godly mom is more interested in her children's relationship with Jesus than their popularity in the world. A godly mom is more interested in her children's spiritual life than their intellectual, musical, or athletic accomplishments. 
That's Lois and that's Eunice. While it isn't in the text, a mother who passes along an authentic faith is no doubt a praying mom. Any home where faith is passed from one generation to the next generation has to be a home of prayer. We find it in the Bible. We cannot imagine Lois not praying for Eunice and Eunice not praying for Timothy. We read in Acts 12, 12, that the mother of John Mark, she opened her home for prayer meeting when Peter was in prison. Acts 1, 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer, watch, watch, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. Godly mothers pray for their kids. Godly mothers pray for their grandkids. This is the first Mother's Day. I haven't been with my mom, but I know she prays for me every day. Moms, in the busyness of your home, are you making the spiritual growth of your children a priority in your life? Moms, are you passing the baton of authentic faith to your kids? How mothers can influence their children, instill a respect of the Word of God to them, instill an authentic faith, and one more, instill a desire to serve. Instill a desire to serve. The third way to impact your children is to instill within this desire to serve God and to serve others. Ladies, you do that by example. But there's another way you do it, and that is by assignment. I mean, you can, you can, your kids can watch you do all the work, but there comes a time when you give the assignment, they set the table. They clear the table. They load the dishwasher. They do the laundry. They put away the laundry. They clean up their room. Reminds me of the father who was trying to explain the concept of marriage to his four-year-old daughter. So he got out their wedding album. He thought the pictures would help, and so he explained the entire wedding service to her, going through each page of, of that album. When he was finished, he asked if if she had any questions. She pointed to the picture of the wedding party and she asked, Daddy, is that when Mommy came to work for us? <laughs> There's the example, but you need to give the assignment. Paul returned to Lystra on his second trip. Let's pick up the story in Acts 16. It's in your notes there. Then came he to Derbe and to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. I see three qualities in Timothy that were no doubt passed down from mother and grandmother to, to Timothy. Three qualities passed down from mom. Number one, a strong believer. A strong believer. First of all, he was a strong believer. Luke refers to Timothy in the book of Acts as a disciple. Now, a disciple is a learner. A disciple is a follower. A disciple is one who is serious about Christ, uh, not just one who is going through the motions. Again, we're back to authentic faith. And then, secondly, we see that he had a good reputation. The Christians, they spoke well of Timothy. Uh, people knew him as a man of integrity. They knew he was, he was honest. Again, I think this has a lot to do with mom and grandma. And then the third thing we see, that he is available to God. He was available. 
Paul wanted him to go along on, on a mission trip. And as you read Acts, you discover that he is eager to serve. Eager to serve. He knew it meant leaving home, and he knew it meant facing hardships. Friends, there is no way to have this kind of commitment to God's work. It develops in a home that encourages that kind of service. I can't think of, and I've heard it, and you've heard it, how many sons and daughters have been discouraged from serving God. Oh, that Bible college, it's so far away. I don't think you should go there. Going in the ministry, well, you just can't make enough money doing that. It's just subtle questions. Be careful what you say. You know, Peter, he says, he says to Jesus, you are, the, you are, you're the son of God. You're the son of the living God. But in the same chapter, Peter says, you're not going to go to the cross. And Jesus says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Satan's got your tongue. Mamas and dads, don't let Satan get your tongue. Encourage your kids to be available to serve God, to want to be able to serve God. Paul invested Timothy. Paul invited Timothy to be a special assistant. I, he needed a replacement for John Mark. He refers to him as beloved son in 1 Corinthians 4, 17. In 1 Timothy 1, 2, he calls him my own son in the faith. In Philippians 2, 20, Paul writes of him, I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Today, we call that kindred spirit. I mean, this man is, he is his Today we call it his Timothy. Uh, uh, Paul is the mentor of this young man. He is like-minded. Mothers, and so your, your job is to instill a respect for the Word of God, the Scriptures, and your job is to instill this authentic faith. But these two elements are only preparation for the most important job of all, and that is instilling within your children a desire to serve God and others. Our kids... Our kids are to learn the Bible and grow in their faith so that they become difference makers in their world, so that they can share their faith with others, so they can minister in the church, minister in the school and Sunday school, so they can serve those who are hurting, so that they can serve as pastors and missionaries and, and lay leaders. They can identify their spiritual gifts and, and get involved and use them on a regular basis. We're going to tell our seniors in a couple of weeks, You've been, you've been served all your life. You've been, been served by your parents, and you've been served by your teachers, and you've been served by your pastors, but now you're graduating. It's time for you to serve others. And if anyone has the attitude, I've done my service, I'm going to step back and let others do it, you, you've, you've missed the spirit of this book. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He's come to serve I tell you right now, we have, a, we have a need in the nursery. Now, all the moms who have kids in the nursery, they're required to take their turn. But, but you older moms, if you have this attitude, well, I'm just going to step back and let them do it. I want you to think back when your kids were little, how the older moms served your kids. You empty nesters. Now, now if, 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 you, if you have the shakes and you're going to drop the kids, that's okay. Just pray for them. Uh, but if, if you, 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 you younger uh, empty nester moms, can't you take a turn? There's not too many pastors that will tell you 
I took my turn during choir practice years ago. I mean, I'm a man, and I did it. You can do it. We had, we had choir nursery back in those days. We need your help. You be available. We, we want to love these young families. Don't step aside and say, ah, oh, did my time. I did my time. No, the time is now. The time is now to be able to serve, to make an impact. So, so in your notes, here's the truth. We are saved in order to serve. We are to be disciples so that we can disciple others. We are equipped so that we can evangelize. We choose holiness so we can have joy and offer what the world doesn't have. Moms and dads, you can't lead by example something you're not doing yourself. Mothers, you can make a significant spiritual impact in your family with or without the help of a father. You can do that by instilling an authentic faith and a respect for scripture and a desire to serve. This is motherhood. Moms, it's your day. May God bless you in it. And I pray that if there is someone here who has never experienced the love of God that, that is very similar to the love of a mother, that this will be your time of decision. To everyone here today, God, God is calling you. Uh, he is inviting you in much the same way that a, that a mother opens the front door and, dinner time! Kids, time to come home. God is calling. I want you to come to my home. And this home is so fantastic. This home called heaven is so great. There are no words in the human language to describe it accurately. This home, there is no pain. There's no suffering. There's no, no death. Oh, there's one more thing. There's no sin there. And so the only way to get there is to be forgiven of your sin. And the only way to be forgiven of your sin is to be able to believe in God's love that sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for you and rise again. And you ask for that forgiveness. Now, it's not just God forgive me. No, no. God, would you please forgive me because I'm trusting and believing that Jesus Christ died in my place, that he took my penalty, he paid my sin debt, and I want to receive him as my own Lord and Savior. You can receive that gift there in your notes. How sad to experience the love of a dad and mom on earth and miss the love of God. Won't you accept him today? The powerful, powerful influence of mothers because of the powerful influence of God and his word in our lives. May we pray. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for this wonderful book that tells us about our wonderful Savior and for the Spirit of God who now indwells us that can encourage us to walk in the ways of God and to shine your light to others in darkness. Thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us and that you can help us and show us how to be grateful to honor moms and dads but especially moms and grandmas on this day. Help us to verbalize that gratitude with words and actions. Father, I pray if there's one here today that is not saved, touch them, draw them to yourself. With their heads bowed, with their eyes closed, you'd say, Pastor, if I, if I died today, I know I would go to heaven because there was a, a time that I, I answered that call God touched my heart, and I received Jesus as my Savior. I know that heaven's my home. 
because I know the living God. I am born again. I am saved. I'm not ashamed to be called a disciple of Christ. Would you simply raise your hand as a testimony all over? Thank you. Thank you. You may put your hands down. You'd say, I, Pastor, I, I think I'm saved. I hope I'm saved, but I'm not sure. I have doubts. If the Spirit of God is tapping on your heart and you sense that pull, that tug to receive Him today, you can say yes to Him. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. If you'd like to do that, you can do it right now. It's, it is not getting baptized. It is not joining the church. It's a decision to receive and believe upon Christ, to trust what he did for you, that he died and rose again for you. And if you'd like to confess him today as your Lord and Savior, I'd like to lead you in that, that calling, that salvation prayer. Right where you're seated, you can do it as I did as a teenager. If you'd like to pray with me today, would you simply raise your hand? I want to be saved today. I want to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. Just hold your hand up high for a moment. I have doubt. I'm not sure. But I sense God is speaking to my heart. He's touching me today. Anyone at all. I would like to trust Christ as my Savior today. Our Father, we thank you for your wonderful promises. Now, Lord, I pray that we can leave this place encouraged and challenged to be able to lean upon you, to trust in you, to obey you, and, and to take your truth and to, to live it out before our sons and daughters that are looking at us. Help us to see that influence we can have upon them. God, I pray that when we, when it's our turn to enter your presence and they take our place, that they'll be strong in the faith and be a light for Christ in their generation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. May we stand together as we sing a song of invitation this morning. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. As we sing, may you sing it as a prayer unto the Lord as we sing together on the first verse. Just reminded of our missions conference, having another missionary here. So glad to have you here. Thank you for your faithfulness and difficult work with the inflation that it is. Thank you for just serving the Lord and seeking to do his work there. Let's keep praying for the De Carvalho's. If you would, please take your Bible. It's our last lesson tonight on the life-transforming moments in Scripture. And uh, we're going to jump right in here. Turn to Luke chapter 19, if you would, please. And uh, tonight's lesson, you know, we've talked about the look of obedience, the look of guilt, uh, the, look of, uh, the look back, the look of life, the look of lust. And tonight is the look of divine grace. All of the life-transforming moments in Scripture took place, folks, from a look. And that's what we've been trying to point out in this little series. And tonight is another look that we see. This look is from Jesus, and it is a look to a familiar character that we know, and that is Zacchaeus. And so we've all heard the story of Zacchaeus, haven't we? Zacchaeus was a what? A wee little man, right? A wee little man was he. What did he do, folks? <laughs> He climbed up in a sycamore tree. For who did he want to see? The Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and said, what? Zacchaeus, come you come down. I got to go to your house today. 
And there was, that's what the lesson is about tonight. Jesus going to this man, this little man's house, and it would transform his life. And it started with a look. If you would please look at Luke chapter 19, and it says in verse 1, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, thank you for the truth of the word of God. Thank you for the privilege to be able to speak that tonight. I pray that you would empower me. I pray that the Spirit of God would speak to our hearts, draw us close to you, help us to be challenged afresh, Lord, by your word to be appreciative of who you are and what you've done in our lives, even as you worked in the life of this little man with big problems, but Jesus was able to heal him. And we praise you for that life-transforming power, blessing our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we know the story. It's a little man. It's a kid's story. But tonight we want to do the adult lesson, the adult version of that story, if you will. And so in your notes there, first off, who was Zacchaeus? Who was Zacchaeus? Maybe you haven't done a study for a while, and I think it's probably been a while since uh, we've talked about him here, but his name in your notes there means pure, clean, and innocent. Can you imagine that? The word Zacchaeus, his name means innocent and pure and clean. Well, he was, he was anything but that, wasn't he? I mean, he was a tax collector. It's ironic that that would be the meaning of his name. In fact, most Jews saw him as unclean because of his profession, a tax collector was not someone, as you know, the publican was not appreciated in Jewish culture and in society. They saw him as guilty as sin, if you will, because of who he was and what he did against his own people. And so notice in your notes, he was a chief tax collector, it says there in verse 2, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. Did you ever notice that before? He wasn't just a publican, folks. He was the chief among the publicans. He was the head of the group of tax collectors that exacted money from the people. This little guy had a big title, and he had lots of power and probably had an attitude about him. And so he was the chief of all the tax collectors called publican, publicans. And by the way, the word publican simply means tax gatherer. And as you know, tax collectors were despised. Is that, is that any different today in our society? <laughs> Probably not, right? Is there anybody that likes to pay taxes? No, I didn't think so, right? So no one back in their day liked to either. But this was something that the tax collectors cheated the people out of, as you're probably aware. And so they were despised by the Jews um, like they are today. He was, he was a crooked cheater, though, who worked for the enemy, and the enemy was Rome. See, what would happen is Rome would put out a bid for someone to become a tax collector in each of their precincts across the Roman Empire. And so they would have to then purchase, like a franchise, someone would come along and purchase the franchise to be the tax collector of a particular precinct. And then they would go and hire other sub-tax collectors in different areas to collect the money and exact the money from the people. And so Zacchaeus probably was that person who purchased the franchise for that precinct, hired these other tax collectors to be able to do sort of his dirty work. 
And so the Jews looked at, at uh, Zacchaeus as sort of a traitor because he was now working for Rome. Rome was, was the enemy, and so he now sold out to the enemy by buying this business. So he was sort of a Roman businessman who was going to bilk his own people out of, out of money. And so the Jews were upset because of that. They looked at him as a betrayer or a traitor. And not only that, he, of course, would, would steal from the people. And so he represented everything that was wrong in society and bad in society because he worked for Rome. It was bad enough to be controlled by a foreigner, but now to, have, to, to take him as a Jewish man and to, and to exact money from his own people, that was especially egregious to, to uh, the people in, Rome, in, in Israel. And so... Tax collectors were hated men, and I don't think I need to make the case for that too much, and they made things worse. Uh, and so what happened, basically, Rome would set their amount of tax that they needed to collect, they'd take record of that, and then the tax collector would say, okay, now we're going to add this amount of tax on top of that. No one knew what the proper amount of tax was, so they could set almost any rate and collect the difference and put it in their pocket while they sent that base amount off to Rome. There was one tax that was basically a... Uh, a personal tax that was 1%, like an income tax. That doesn't sound high, but when you think about all the other taxes that came along as you look at some of these things, they could add tax after tax. And so some of the things, as I was studying this, <clears throat> the taxes that they would charge the people would, with would be um, taxes like a wheel tax on their cart. If you have two wheels, you get a tax. They'd tax for the axle that held those two wheels. They'd tax for the cart on top of the axle that, that the wheels were required for. And every little thing that you could think of, there was a cart tax, an animal tax, an individual tax, an income tax, a property tax, grain tax, oil tax, wine tax. Everything was taxed. And so they could add more on to every one of those taxes. And so now the people were feeling oppressed. And it says there that he was rich. You wonder why, right? Because he was getting rich off of his own people. And so they were despising these tax collectors um, because they, they knew that they were unscrupulous and unfair. And so again, this chief tax collector would charge the rank-and-file tax collectors to go out and charge as much as they could, and then he would take that money off the top and um, just upset the people and so he would have been considered a tax collector would have been as considered in the same realm category as prostitutes and sinners the tax collector and so enter our hero of the night right Zacchaeus he's the chief he's in charge and everyone would have seen him as the chief of sinners when they thought about Zacchaeus and when they looked at Zacchaeus they didn't want to have anything to do with him. He was uh, ostracized from society. And in fact, that's what they did. The publicans couldn't go into the Temple Mount. They would be ushered out by the Temple Police out the Eastern Gate. And they weren't allowed to be around and, and basically ostracized from society because they saw them basically as Gentiles almost because of the way they were mistreating the people. And so Zacchaeus probably saw himself in the same way. Boy, I don't have a lot of friends here. I know I'm a bad guy, but I'm rich, and so there's something, at least I'm, I'm, I'm getting good, but there was a lot of bad, and he was making enemies, and that was unfortunate, and so you see that, and so number C there in your notes is, yes, he was rich, but he didn't get rich by hard work, 
He got rich off his own countrymen, as we talked about, bilking them out of money. Jesus taught this, that it was harder for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than for him to enter heaven. Why was that? Well, we know because riches can be an idol of the heart, right? They can draw us away from God. But Jesus concluded that statement, even though someone is rich, what is impossible with men is possible with God. So it was even possible for someone like Zacchaeus, who was all about money and all about taking advantage of the people and all about getting ahead for his own selfish gain. Jesus said, even a guy like that, there's hope for him. And folks, if God could do a life transformation in the life of a guy like Zacchaeus, is there anyone who would be out of the reach of the Lord to, to get to? We would say no. We would say no. He could reach into anybody's heart. And look at verse 10, because that's what Jesus was all about. It says there, And the Son of Man, Jesus is speaking, is come to seek and to save that which was lost. This little interchange here was all about getting the worst of the worst, the chief of sinners, the chief tax collector, to know God and to come to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus had an appointment, a divine appointment with this man. And so he was a worldly man with worldly aspirations, but something, something was working in his heart. Something got his, his attention on this particular day. Because it says there in verse 3, after he was publican and rich, verse 3, and he sought to see Jesus who he was. Why would that be? And could not for the press because he was little of stature. In your notes number 2, what did Zacchaeus do? Well, he heard that Jesus was passing through town and, and he went to see him. Actually, Zacchaeus is saying, well, I'm interested. I want to I find out who this Jesus is, I've heard a ton about him. Everybody would have known about Jesus. But maybe Z uh, Zacchaeus thought, you know, there's no way he would approve of me either. He's a righteous man. He's a prophet. He's a godly man. He knows who I am. I couldn't possibly approach Jesus. But he ran to the crowd uh, to be able to see him. Something piqued his interest about him, and all of Israel was talking about Jesus. Could it be that he was passing through Jericho just at the time that Jesus was the precise time, but Jesus knew that Zacchaeus was being convicted. The thought in his heart was, I want to go see this man, Jesus. And Jesus understood that and was divinely appointing this time together. This wretched sinner would meet with Jesus, and Jesus knew that he was becoming ripe for salvation. Almost like when Jesus said, I needs go through Samaria, right? I needs go through, I have to go through Samaria because up there there's a Samaritan woman and I have a divine appointment with her. In the same way, it's necessary, he's going to say, Zacchaeus, I need to come to your house today. I need to go there. There's something important that's in store for you. And so as Jesus is passing through, um, Zacchaeus is on his way to sort of meet with Jesus. Um, but he knew he had to get a better look at Jesus. Verse 3 again, and he, and he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press. He could have just said, oh, well, I guess I'll miss it this time. I'll catch him another time. Because he was little of stature. But verse 4 says, but he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. Something in Zacchaeus was making him persistent. 
It says, I'm trying to get to him. I can't see him. I'm little. I'm small. By the way, the crowds at that time were thronging Jesus. It's getting to be Passion Week in the next week. And so Jesus would have just healed uh, Lazarus and his fame was going all throughout the land. And Jesus is getting ready to go and do his triumphal entry in a couple days. And so, so here's Zacchaeus. And all the people, probably tens of thousands of people in Jericho heading up to Bethany and then all into Jerusalem, and, and they're thronging, and so they can't get to Jesus. So all the hubbub is, is again, piquing the interest of, of this Zacchaeus. And so he's got to get to see Jesus. He wants to see Jesus, but he can't because he's little. So he takes the initiative to run on ahead. And in your notes there, letter B, he ran ahead and climbed up into a tree to see Jesus. And so I believe that God put it into his heart for Zacchaeus, that drive and desire to pursue his inner conviction to get a look at Jesus at all costs. Zacchaeus didn't yet know what Jesus was going to do or what was working in Jesus' heart, but something was saying to Jesus, the Holy Spirit conviction saying to Zacchaeus, you need to see this man. And so he wasn't satisfied with just looking through the crowd. He ran ahead climbed up in a sycamore tree before the crowds got there and waited in anticipation just so he could get a glimpse at Jesus. That's pretty neat to think about that this wicked man was coming into contact with the Lord of glory and something was stimulating his heart to, uh, to move in that direction. And so he wouldn't let anything hold him back and so strategically that's what he was trying to do, position himself just to get a glimpse at Jesus. Now, kids would climb up into a tree, but here's this man. He, he's, he's a little guy. He's a powerful man. He's, he's a feared man, and he's, he's a noted man. And yet, he's not hesitant to climb up into a tree to say, hey, I don't care. I just I want to get a look. I want to see who this man is. And so, again, a publican could be thrown out of the temple, and he could be cast out of the synagogue. And he would be isolated from God and religion and worship. And no one, again, would want to be around such a fellow. And not be a part of general Jewish society, even though he had a lot of money. But deep inside, he knew who he was and what he was. And he was dissatisfied, most likely, and guilty. And so he says, who is this Jesus? I got to get, get more information about him. And so we see there in your notes the next step that happens. And there in your notes, Jesus gives a divine look to Zacchaeus. Verse 4 again, And he ran before and climbed up into that sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, there's our operative words there, he looked up. Now, could you imagine right at that point what might have happened between Jesus and Zacchaeus? He looks up. There's thousands of people thronging him. And he decides to look up into the tree and sees this little man up there. And I'll bet you Zacchaeus is thinking, oh my word, he noticed me. He, he's looking at me. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Look what he says. He looked up at Jesus. This was the divine appointment. This look would be the transformation, the beginning of the transformation that took place in his life. Tens of thousands of people around Jesus and his ministry, the people are thronging him. And it's, again, right before Passion Week, so everyone knew him of all the people. But 
Back in Luke chapter 15 and verse 1, it says this, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Folks, it wasn't unusual for these publicans to want to hear from Jesus. In fact, if you look through the gospel of Luke, there are six different places that Luke specifically mentions where Jesus has interactions with the publicans. And you know what? All six of them were positive experiences. And I put them in your notes. You can read down through them. He called Matthew to be one of his own followers, a tax collector. And all the publicans that was, Jesus was speaking to justified God and were baptized in Luke chapter 7. All the publicans drew near to hear Jesus, as I just read. And you know the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, just back a page in chapter 18, it says there, there were two men who went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a publican, chapter 18, verse 10. Now 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, as extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican over here. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes to all that I possess. That's how he prayed. But look how the publican prays. The publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who went away justified? Jesus tells us, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. That was a tax collector. Jesus is giving the parable of a tax collector who comes to himself, and now that's going to come to pass right here. Nick, uh, uh, Zacchaeus is going to be that person. So Jesus looks up, but that's not all he does. Look what it says. He says, Zacchaeus, make haste. He knew Zacchaeus's name. Now, do you think that surprised Zacchaeus? It probably did. Like, how would he know me? I don't, I know of him, and I know his name is Jesus, but we never met before. I thought he didn't like to come around guys like me. And so... That must have caught him by surprise. Either he was scared that Jesus knew his name and he was getting called now to, to go into the principal's office, so to speak, or he was excited that this great man would even know him. And that must have made Zacchaeus begin to think that Jesus was different and more powerful than anyone had ever met. Why did he call him by name? Zacchaeus, he said, make haste and come down. For today I must abide in thy house. Well, according to some church historians, listen to this. Clement of Alexandria says that Zacchaeus became a prominent Christian leader and ended up as pastor of the church in Caesarea, later to be succeeded by none other than Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Now, we don't read that in the scriptures. That was passed down by historians. So think if that was possibly the case. Maybe that's why Jesus called him out by name. Zacchaeus, I know who you are. And I have a plan for your life. And you and I need to talk. Because there's something great that's going to happen in you. And through you. And it can't happen unless you come down off that tree. And you and I go to have some time together. So Jesus instructed him there in your notes. He's just simply said, come down, as is often the case. 
Jesus called the blind men to him. He called the lame men. He called people to him when he was going to heal them. In this case, he was testing Zacchaeus' faith. You come down here. I want to see that you're obedient to my command. You come. I need to talk with you. And so, just like the, the publican over there who humbled himself that we just read about in Luke 18, he's going to humble himself, and he doesn't come grudgingly Look what it says, verse 6, and he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Whoa, absolutely, here I come, Lord. You mean you'd give me a chance? You mean there's something that you want to talk to me about? Obviously, there was some guilt going on in Zacchaeus' heart that he wanted to speak with Jesus, that he was glad that Jesus had noticed him, that he knew his name. And he made haste and came down like, yes, this could be the best day of my life. And it would be. It would be. He was going to be transformed for life. This was his moment. And so Jesus instructs him to come down. Next, Jesus invited himself, how about that, to go to, to Zacchaeus' house. I need to go to your house today. It must needs be that Zacchaeus, I come over. And folks, can I say to you right there that Jesus didn't have to do that to this wicked man, did he? He could have just left him go. He could have said, you're not worthy. You're, you're really, you would hurt my ministry if I fraternize with you and I become a friend of you because they're already making fun of me of being friends of sinners and, 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 and wicked people, harlots and sinners and publicans and sinners. So I've done them accusing me of that. I'm not going to deal with you. But no, he didn't. Here was another publican that Jesus was going to deal with. And so he instructs him to come down. He, in, he invited himself to go to Zacchaeus' home. In other words, he was seeking Zacchaeus out as a, as a lost sinner. And folks, can I say to you, this was pure love. It was pure grace. It was pure mercy. It was pure benevolence. It was pure kindness that Jesus would even bother with such a person. And yet, isn't that what he does with all of us when he called us to salvation? And we can't miss it. And we should never get over our salvation because none of us are worthy of the wonderful gift and the grace of salvation that God gives to all of us. And so that's what he's doing with Zacchaeus. And so, just like he said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost, and this man was way lost. So when he was saying it must needs be or it's necessary, he said, um, I must... Make haste and come down, for today I must abide at your house. What Jesus was saying, basically, is it is necessary for me to come over, and it indicates that Jesus was going to stay overnight at his house. He was going to spend time with them. God was coming into his home. Next there in your notes, letter E, Jesus didn't care what others thought about him, associating himself with a tax collector. Verse 7, and when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that this, that he was gone to be the guest with a man that is a sinner. Well, that wasn't the first time, again, that they accused Jesus of that. They all complained. They knew exactly how reprehensible this Zacchaeus was. Contrast that reaction with how excited Zacchaeus was. He was overjoyed that Jesus was going with him. You know, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God calls the weak and the base things to himself, not the wise and the powerful. 
And so here was this wretched sinner that Jesus was going to save. And letter F, he was, he was spent time with him. He goes to his house. He has gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And so Zacchaeus joyfully receives him. God had been working in his heart, convicting him for some time. And now Jesus was coming into his life, seeking to give one of the worst of sinners eternal life as a gift, as a wonderful gift. There was a life-transforming gift of grace that was happening here. And so we read verse 8, and it says, And Zacchaeus stood and said unto him, Now that they're in Zacchaeus' house, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. So having been there for a day, Jesus obviously presents truth to him, who he is, what he's done, reveals his sinfulness. Zacchaeus knows that he was a sinner, and he has a transformed life immediately. And so there in your notes, having been there for a day and listening to Jesus' words of love and forgiveness, Zacchaeus was completely transformed. And though we don't read the specifics of the gospel in the dialogue, it's obvious that he got saved because Jesus saw his brokenness over his sin and disgusting, self-absorbed life. And so what does he do? Zacchaeus, he calls him Lord. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said unto him, Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods... Something happened in his heart that he would call Jesus Lord, right? It says he would give half of his possessions away to help the poor. Folks, he went from chief sinner, chief publican, chief ripoff artist to, <laughs> to chief philanthropist. He's given, to the, he's given to the poor. In one day, he has a complete transformation. That was different, by the way, from the rich young ruler that Jesus talked about who went away sad because Jesus asked him to sell his riches. And so, not only that, verse 8 says that he would restore four times the amount he had stolen from the people. Once again in verse 8, Behold, Lord, the half the goods I give to feed the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. The Old Testament law in Numbers said that a Jew was required to restore what was taken back from the... As a thief, he was to give back to the person that whole thing plus 20%. That was Numbers chapter 5. So that would have been a total of 120%. When you look further back in Exodus chapter 22, it says that if you rob someone with violence or destruction, you're supposed to give back fourfold. And so Zacchaeus was giving back because he felt, I did this in violence and corruption. I really need to pay back my share. And so he offers fourfold, the full amount, 400%, indicating again a transformed life, a complete change in his heart. And so in your notes there, Jesus declared salvation has come to this house in verse 9. So we know he got saved. Verse 9, and Jesus said unto him, this day is salvation come to this house for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. Folks, when Jesus says someone and saves, that settles it, right? That's it. For the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And then finally, Jesus calls him. He says, he's the son of Abraham. In verse 9, and Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is the son of Abraham. To be called the son of Abraham did not um, 
It did not happen by being born into the Jewish race by physical birth. It happened by faith in Christ. Those who believe in, by faith are the sons of Abraham, just as Abraham believed by faith to become a child of God. It's not Jewish religion that saves, it's Jesus that saves, right? It's those that put their faith in Christ. They become a Jew inwardly, not outwardly. And I put that there in your notes. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. They, those who believe by faith, Galatians 3, 7. And that's exactly what happened to Zacchaeus. He came by faith and was transformed in a day because he had spent time with Jesus. Started with that look and it ended with a transformation in his life. So what's the lesson for us as we think about life-transforming moments in Scripture? All of us who have been saved, your life was transformed that day, but it should be continuing to transform as we become more and more like Jesus Christ, right? And so the spiritual growth challenge tonight, folks, is this. If Jesus could transform the life of a wicked publican like Zacchaeus, then he could transform anyone's life. Let him continue to transform you by loving his word, living his word, and exemplifying his life. Because guess what? We should never be the same, right? We should never be the same. Let's let the truth of God from Zac Zacchaeus speak to our hearts and let's be different and show that we truly are faithful children of God. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for our time tonight in the Word. Thank you for this series, Lord, that we can look into places where people were truly transformed, even some of the most wicked uh, people in society. Thank you for the lesson of the hour with Zacchaeus. And I pray, Lord, that we would consider our own lives, even this week, that we would continually be transformed. May we never think that we've arrived in our Christian life. Paul said that he was chief of sinners even at the end of his ministry. So Lord, help us to uh, live a life that is pleasing to you, that makes a difference in people's lives because we're walking more and more in fellowship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.